0: Chapter 10, Part 2 of U.S. Marine Operations in Korea, 1950 to 1953, Volume 2, The Inchon-Seoul Operation, by Lynn Montross and Nicholas Canzona. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Crossing the Han. Departure of General MacArthur. General Shepard and Admiral Struble witnessed the crossing from a vantage point on the south bank where they had a good view of the fight for Hill 125. Both accompanied General MacArthur that afternoon, when he made a final tour of the front before his departure for Tokyo. The caravan of jeep-borne officers and reporters stopped first at the crossing area, then proceeded to the zone of the First Marines, where the battle for Yongdungpo was going on full blast. General MacArthur got out of his jeep and continued on foot along rice paddies where Marines were still flushing out snipers. This meant a period of anxiety for General Smith, which lasted until the responsibility for the safety of the Commander-in-Chief passed to General Barr in the zone of the 7th Infantry Division. On the afternoon of the 21st, the Marine General saw MacArthur off at Kimpo on his plane for Tokyo. Never had the old warrior worn his famous scrambled egg cap with more verve. Barely a week had gone by since the Marines scrambled ashore on red and blue beaches, yet most of the major objectives had already been taken. Incheon, Kimpo, Yongdungpo, the north bank of the Han, and the approaches to Seoul. In the Pusan perimeter, meanwhile, the 8th Army had been hitting the enemy hard in its joint offensive. This was the score on D plus 7. But perhaps the famous septuagenarian recalled with pardonable complacency that as late as D-7, the Joint Chiefs of Staff had reiterated doubts of the Incheon landing which they had expressed on several previous occasions. MacArthur was warned that if the operation failed, the entire United Nations cause in Korea might be plunged into serious difficulties. The commander-in-chief replied with superb assurance, I and all my commanders and staff officers, without exception, are enthusiastic and confident of the success of the enveloping operation. Such confidence could not be withstood. But it was not until 8 September 1950 that the Joint Chiefs of Staff finally acquiesced in an operation they had never entirely approved, an operation scheduled to take place in just one week. It may be that Douglas MacArthur was recalling this exchange of views as he stood in the sunlight of Kimpo Airfield, his eyes flashing and his chin outthrust, There is no tonic like victory, and he looked twenty years younger than his actual years as he decorated General Smith with a silver star just before the plane took off. To the gallant commander of a gallant division, said the commander-in-chief by way of citation. Supporting Arms of Bridgehead Even success did not alter the conviction of Navy and Marine amphibious specialists, that risks had been assumed in the Inchon landing which might have resulted in disaster. It was taking no credit away from General MacArthur for his unshakable faith in victory to conclude that fortune had smiled in some instances when a frown would have been costly. The teamwork of Marine supporting arms was never shown to better effect than in the establishment of a bridgehead over the Han. Lieutenant Colonel Partridge's engineers, of course, were on the job from the beginning. It was up to them to get the tanks across the river as soon as possible, in case the infantry needed the support of armor. Approaches and ferry landings had to be constructed for this purpose, and just six hours after the initial infantry crossing, the engineers had their first six-float M4A2 raft in operation. It had taken them four hours to build. The 2nd Platoon of Able Company, 1st Tank Battalion, crossed the river at 1410 on 20 September, and moved up in support of three five. The first platoon followed at sixteen hundred and the third platoon late that afternoon after the engineers completed a second raft. When the KMCs attempted to cross in DUKWs, the clumsy vehicles bogged down several yards from the river on the south bank. Partridge suggested to the KMC commander that his troops build a makeshift corduroy approach off the main route which Marine engineers were constructing to the embarkation point. The Korean officer agreed with Partridge that this was a sensible solution and soon had his men gathering logs. Neither of them dreamed that they had stirred up an international incident which called for a decision on the division level. American policymakers had felt it necessary to lean backwards to avoid giving Communist propagandists any excuse to charge us with recruiting Koreans for slave labor. It was an extremely sensitive subject, and Partridge was astonished at the repercussions. At last, General Craig visited the ferry site and ruled that it was a closed incident after finding all explanations satisfactory. It was further decided, for mechanical rather than political reasons, to take the KMC's across in Amtraks rather than waste any more time on DUKWs. On the night of the 20th, Partridge and Colonel McAllister, the Division G4, interviewed a captured NKPA engineer major at Kimpo Airfield. The prisoner informed them that the bombed highway bridge between Yongdungpo and Seoul had been damaged beyond repair with the means at hand. This agreed with the conclusion of the Marine officers on the basis of aerial observation. Prospects for a span over the Han seemed dim as Partridge was leaving McAllister's quarters. That very evening, however, Lieutenant Colonel Rowney, Chief of the Ten Corps Engineers, telephoned to announce that materials for a floating bridge unit had been accumulated by the Army in Japan and would be flown to Korea shortly. Up to this time, with the rafts the only solution, the Marine Engineers had supplied all the materials. But Rowney announced that Corps would assume the responsibility after the arrival of enough materials for a floating bridge unit. Military operations could not wait a week or ten days for the new span, and the Marine Ferry, plus Amtraks and DUKWs, had to nourish the assault on Seoul. With this end in view, the 1st Shore Party Battalion reverted to division control on the 19th and displaced from Inchon to Oyoso-Ri. By nightfall, the entire battalion was bivouacked in this area. On the 20th, after establishing a forward CP at Kimpo Airfield, The shore-party troops of Baker Company moved up to the Hahn in support of the 5th Marines, followed by two teams from Able Company. Evacuation stations and supply dumps were set up on both banks. Other shore-party missions were maintaining LVT and DUKW traffic control, providing guides for the Amtraks, posting security at the crossing sites on both banks, And affecting unit distribution of supplies upon request by the DUKWs and LVTs. Control of the ferry site, known as Baker Ferry, became the responsibility of Baker Company of the 1st Shore Party Battalion. Teams 1 and 2 were employed on the South Bank and Team 3-plus headquarters troops on the other shore. Traffic control was of the utmost importance since ferry operation had to be limited to periods of low tide and during idle intervals, a long line of vehicles accumulated. Most of them were trucks containing cargo to be reloaded in LVTs and taken across the river. The shore party men had the duty of keeping the traffic flowing as smoothly as possible, both on land and water, and special regulations were enforced to prevent the LVTs from colliding with the ferries. With the establishment of a third ferry, the problem of supplying the troops across the river was pretty well solved. Command Ashore Assumed by Ten Corps A military ceremony was held on 21 September when the commanding general of Ten Corps established his CP in Inchon and assumed command at 1,700 of all forces ashore. It was stated in some reports that command had been transferred from the commander of JTF-7 to the commander of Ten Corps. But officers familiar with amphibious doctrine pointed out that at no time prior to landing did CG-10 Corps relinquish command, and only through him did the commander of JTF-7 exercise command. The date was also significant for the 1st Marine Division in that its 3rd Rifle Regiment, the 7th Marines, landed at Inchon with Major Francis F. Perry's 3rd Battalion of the 11th Marines attached. Before the ships reached the inner harbor, Colonel Litzenberg went ashore and reported at the Division CP. Informing General Smith that troop units in the convoy had been vertically loaded for maximum flexibility, he asked what troops the Division commander desired to have unloaded first. An infantry battalion, said General Smith. And what next? Another infantry battalion, said the commanding general. Colonel Litzenberg began unloading at once, and at 2200, his CP had opened at Wangjong ni two miles south of Kimpo Airfield, while h Company and 3rd Battalion, Major Maurice E. Roach, occupied nearby assembly areas. The 2nd Battalion, Lieutenant Colonel Thornton M. Hinkle, had reached an assembly area at Hill 131, a mile north of Kimpo, by 0100 on 22 September with the mission of providing security for the airfield and a river crossing site. The 1st Battalion, Lt. Col. Raymond G. Davis, was given the duty of unloading the ships of the convoy. It appeared for a few hours on 21 September that the enemy might be planning to retake Kimpo Airfield. At 0730, a report came to the 3rd Battalion, KMC Regiment, warning of an attempted NKPA crossing of the Han in the area about seven miles northwest of the airfield. Airstrikes were called immediately with the result of dispersing the enemy. At 1310, however, an estimated two NKPA battalions were reported in front of KMC positions by the Air Liaison Officer attached to the battalion. All units in the Kimpo area were alerted to the possibility of attack. The CO of the 1st Shore Party Battalion was designated as coordinator of defensive forces consisting of his unit and elements of the 1st Engineer Battalion, 1st Tank Battalion, 1st Ordnance Battalion, and 1st Amphibian Tractor Battalion. Army troops of the 56th Amphibian Tractor Battalion were also ordered to Kimpo. With an NKPA attack threatening, some concern was felt about an enemy yak-type aircraft, fueled, armed, and ready for flight, Which had been discovered in a revetment on the edge of the airfield by 1st Lieutenant Edward E. Collins of the Ordnance Battalion and later of the 5th Marines. The plane was hastily disarmed and painted with U.S. markings so that it could be flown to Japan in case the enemy overran Kimpo. Although the NKPA threat did not materialize, there could be no doubt of an enemy buildup within striking distance. And it was on this sensitive left flank that the support of naval gunfire was most effective. As early as 19th September, the 1st and 5th Marines had advanced beyond the range of the light cruisers and destroyers. The battleship Missouri was made available the next day, but targets in Seoul proved to be too distant for her maximum range, and no further efforts were made to call upon the battleship's 16-inch rifles. In the Kimpo area, however, naval gunfire was at its best, and a total of 535 8-inch shells were fired from 21 to 24 September, by the Toledo and Rochester. These fires were requested by Lieutenant Wierski in support of patrol actions by the 3rd KMC Battalion. One of the KMC attacks wiped out a company-sized pocket of Red Korean resistance in the vicinity of Chongdong, about three miles northwest of the airfield on the south bank of the Han, with a loss to the enemy of 40 counted dead and some 150 prisoners. After the Han crossing, the 1st Marine Division found itself in the position of advancing astride an unbridged Tidal River with the northern flank wide open. Generals Smith and Craig depended on VM-06 helicopters for their visits to the 5th Marine's front. Those rotary-winged aircraft were in increasing demand for evacuating serious casualties, and the commanding general directed that such missions be given priority over command and liaison flights. This meant that Smith and Craig were occasionally bumped. In such instances, they crossed the river by LVT or waited until their helicopter could return. At the time of the Han crossing, the general plan for the 1st Marine Division had been for RCT-5 to clear the north bank and open up crossing sites for RCT-1 in the Yongdungpo area. That regiment would then cross to see South Mountain, just north of the crossing site, thus forming an enclave in Seoul proper. Further objectives were to be seized by RCT-1 to the north and east while the KMC regiment passed through RCT-5 to attack the center of the city. Here a political motive entered the picture, since it was desired to have Koreans take a prominent part in the liberation of the former ROC capital. To the north, on the left flank of the division, It was planned for RCT-7 to seize objectives to protect the flank and cut off the escape of the enemy. Meanwhile, RCT-5 would revert to division reserve as soon as the tactical situation made it possible. So much for the plan. Before it could be put into execution, stiffening NKPA resistance made it necessary to consider revisions. Not only was the hilly terrain northwest of Seoul well suited to defensive operations, but it had been a training area as far back as the japanese overlordship the fields of fire accurately charted moreover it had become evident by the 21st that the enemy was about to exchange a strategy of delaying operations for one of defending to the last ditch the first marines had already experienced the new nkpa spirit at yongdungpo and on the 21st the 5th Marines contented itself with limited advances for the purpose of seizing high ground from which to launch the assault on Seoul. The attack on the 21st was launched astride the railroad by the 3rd Battalion to the north and the 1st Battalion between the railroad and the river. After passing through the 2nd Battalion, Taplett's men seized three hills and by dusk were digging in on Hill 216, about 6 miles east of Hill 125 and the ferry landing site. The 1st Battalion had meanwhile advanced to Hill 96, about 3,000 yards southeast of yesterday's objective, Dog, now occupied by the 2nd Battalion in reserve. Further gains of some 2,500 yards to the southeast took the battalion to Hill 68, between the railroad and the river, which was seized and held for the night. Enemy resistance ranged from light to moderate in both battalion zones. Between them, the 1st Battalion of the KMC's moved up to Hill 104, just north of the railroad and south of Seichon Creek. This was the situation across the river at nightfall on the 21st. The 5th Marines was in position to grapple with the enemy for possession of Seoul. Hill 104, in the center of the 5th Marines front, was only 5,000 yards west of the government palace in the northwest section of the city. Less than three miles, yet officers and men alike realized that they would have to fight for every inch of the way. If anyone had any doubts, he had only to watch the flashes of gunfire stabbing the night sky to the southeast, and he had only to listen to the unremitting roar of gunfire. For at Yongdungpo, the First Marines had been slugging it out with the enemy for the last three days in a battle for the rambling industrial suburb. End of chapter 10, part 2, read by Aaron Bennett.